You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. We have been going through the book of Luke since last fall as a closer look at the person of Jesus. And today we finish chapter 9. It's rather a large reading from Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 62. So hang in with me if this is uh, longer for you. The subtext I want you to see throughout as we read is that almost every little story we'll look at in Luke 9, 37 through 62 is an example of the disciples' failure. So let's read Luke chapter 9, verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met Jesus. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent his messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but... Let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the gospel of Christ. 
In Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, Caesar has become the self-proclaimed emperor of Rome, turning Rome from a republic into a dictatorship. Now, many of the senators of the republic began to feel threatened, and Caesar knew there was a plot against him, but he didn't know that one of his best friends, Brutus, was a part of that plot. And of course, towards the end of the tragedy of the play, and what is a mimic of what really happened in real life, Brutus stabs Caesar, and Caesar comes out with these famous words that Shakespeare makes famous. Et tu, Brute? Meaning, you too, Brutus? You, of all people, one of my friends was a part of this plot against me? This is a you, of all people, kind of moment. Maybe with lesser severity than Caesar, you have been disappointed by those close to you. You've experienced a betrayal or maybe just an unexpected disappointment of some kind with people in your lives. Maybe the obedient child you had grew up and did something unbelievably reckless as an adult. Maybe that colleague that you thought would be around with you forever until the day you retired bolted at the first opportunity. Maybe a Tennessee fan who's gotten fed up with the last 15 years of the football team finally decided to become an Alabama fan. (laughs) You, you of all people, surely we've had those moments in our past. Maybe we were one of those people where, where we never thought we'd do that thing that disappointed someone else. But I bet you can think of a you, you of all people moment in your life. That's basically what's on offer in this passage. Jesus' disciples have been following him around for some time. We don't know how much time has elapsed, really, from about Luke 4 to the present moment. But it was some time, these 12 inner circle guys. And here they are in this passage, one story after another, one vignette after another, having a you, you of all people kind of moment. We might expect these failures from the Pharisees, these religious leaders who were snobs. We might expect it from the crowd who wasn't following Jesus all that closely. They were just kind of after the next miracle, the next big moment. But the disciples, of all people, them? So this morning, I want to show us that even Christians, those who profess to follow Christ, can have a you, you of all people kind of moment. Let's look at this through three points. The unbelief of Jesus' followers, the results of the unbelief of Jesus' followers, and the Savior of Jesus' followers. The unbelief, the results of the unbelief, and the Savior of Jesus' followers. So first, the unbelief of Jesus' followers. Let's begin with the first passage in verses 37 through 43. And the background here is that we learn a new piece of information. Previously, two sermons ago, when Pastor Ben preached, we saw in verse 1 that Jesus sent his disciples out without him, but he gave the disciples the same authority he had to preach about himself, to heal and do miracles, and then to cast out demons. And that's what they do. In verse 6, it says they go out preaching and healing. And then they come back in verse 10 and tell everybody what they've done. It's not until we get here, though, where we see a father begging of his son to be exercised of demons in verses 30 and 39 that we realize that the disciples had some failures. This demon that indwelled this child, and I know sometimes that uh, is hard for us to believe in a modern age, but if you have trouble believing that, talk to me afterwards. For now, go with it. That this child would foam with the mouth, that he would have these seizures, and the disciples couldn't cast this demon out successfully. And Jesus' response seems harsh in verse 41. O faithless and twisted generation, 
How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Now, most immediately, this is a lament Jesus directs at his disciples. What? I gave you authority and power to do this. How come you couldn't do it? And yet, the disciples are also a stand-in for ancient Israel. God's lament towards Israel, especially as they wandered in the wilderness, and as we read in the Deuteronomy passage, this evil generation that just wouldn't trust God. There were 12 tribes of Israel, and the disciples, the 12 disciples, are a stand-in for a whole generation of people who just can't trust God like they ought, as they're supposed to, as his very followers. A whole generation of people these disciples are standing for, for a generation that doesn't trust that Jesus' very name could cast out demons. This gets to a theological distinction that may seem like splitting hairs, but I think is rather important, and it's this question. What is the root sin? What is the one sin that, if you looked at it, is underneath every other sin that we commit? The ancient church fathers, especially Augustine, held that it was pride. Adam and Eve were in the garden, and Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve was to be like God. And so, looking at God and thinking that looked like a pretty good thing to be, Adam and Eve wanted to be like him, and so they had pride. And so, therefore, every, the sin underneath every other sin is that we really think that we're better than. We compare when we look at others or God, and we see how much better we are. Or we're, simply, we're just more self-focused. That's one view. Another view holds that envy is the root sin underneath every sin. You go back to the Garden of Eden and when Eve saw that the fruit that she takes from the tree that she's not supposed to was pleasing to the eye. In other words, it was desirable. This view holds that sin and every sin is really just a manifestation of things that you think that should belong to you that shouldn't belong to you or shouldn't belong to you yet. Things like fame or power or lust. But by the time you get to Jesus, he is always imploring others to believe. That is, to trust him. To trust him with their whole selves, not just their intellectual cognition, assent that Jesus is who he says he is, but trust Jesus with their whole selves. And he says it all the time, especially in the book of John. And he accosts people when they don't trust him. Like here, oh, twisted and faithless generation. And so if you go back to Adam and Eve, maybe their root sin was ultimately that God said, look, you get everything except that one tree in the garden. You can't eat of that. You can eat from the tree of life. You just can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything is yours. Everything I have is yours. And the root sin when Adam and Eve sinned was simply just not trusting that what God had already said would be true. Yes, I think unbelief is the root sin. Not actually trusting God for who he is and what he's done in the past. And if this is true, then Jesus' verdict upon all of us is that our root sin is unbelief. What has kept us from God or what can still keep us from growing in Christ as Christians is our unbelief. Let me show you how this works. Often unconsciously, this works in our soul. You struggle with a tech addiction an app you can't get away from or a new device you just love and the people around you can't get you to lift up your head and actually pay attention to them. And you do that because you don't really believe that God could make you happier than a device. 
Or you struggle to share about Jesus with those who don't believe in him because you don't really believe that you have eternal acceptance in Christ. As a Christian, you are already accepted by God. There's nothing you do to make yourself more accepted by him. But you're more worried about being accepted by them. And so you don't really believe that you're eternally accepted by God. And it wouldn't matter whether you're accepted by other people or not. Or you struggle with the jealousy of others' lives, whether it's the compliance of their children. That's me, I'm pointing at myself. Or maybe you struggle with jealousy of other li- others' lives, like the size of their house, because you don't really believe that God could take care of all your needs and wants. No matter what the surface sin might be, the deeper sin, the root sin of all sin is unbelief. Maybe you struggle to believe in God at all, but you mask your inability to believe behind intellectual reasons when the real issue is that you just couldn't relationally trust God because all the most important people in your lives have disappointed you. And so you twistedly reason that you couldn't believe that God exists because he must be mean. Lurking deep within every struggle we have is some unbelief in God. We don't trust that he really could be that loving or that perfect or that all-powerful or that consistent. We desire trust or fear other things besides God. Now, this unbelief evidences itself in many ways, which really leads to our next point. There are results of this unbelief. And that's what I want to look at this morning. The results of the unbelief of Jesus's followers. Again, uh, we could apply all of this to those who don't believe as well, but the main focus here is Jesus's followers and their results of their unbelief. There's ignorance, there's pride, there's territorialism, harshness, and fear. Now, some of you take notes. I'll go over this all again, but ignorance, pride, territorialism, harshness, and fear. Let me show you. Ignorance first. Jesus has gotten done exercising the boy of demons. And while everything is still going on, the end of verse 43 says, Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. I'm going to be delivered over into the hands of men. Now, on the surface, the disciples know that basically this means being arrested. They understand his words. They just don't understand the why. What? Why are you you going to be arrested? Who would care about an itinerant prophet? What? What do you mean? For what purpose would you be arrested? Ignorance. The result of their unbelief first is they just can't fathom that Jesus would die. The second result of unbelief is pride. This makes Luke's placement of their argument in verse 46 about who is the greatest all the more damning. Because they've just, we've just gotten done seeing that they couldn't exercise demons. And then they can't understand what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about his cross. And now here they're like, yeah, who of us is the greatest? Pride is a result of unbelief. Not looking within, but actually thinking, man, I'm pretty great. I'm better than other people. I'm really, Jesus really likes me more. Then that makes the disciples territorial. In verses 49 through 50, they tell these other people who are exercisers of demons, oh, no, you can't do that. You're not one of us. You're not in the inner circle. And Jesus rebukes them, saying, for the one who is not against you is for you. This may be a territorialism born of pride, but what Jesus is trying to show them is, hey, you don't have the inside track. You are the 12 I chosen, but you know, I'm not going to be around forever, and you disciples are also going to have 
disciples. So what belief manifests is actually spreading the circle outwards, and what unbelief manifests is a territorialism. Ah, we, we, the faithful few. Ah, we, the special. Moving on. In verses 51 through 56, Jesus wants to continue to spread the good news about him in Samaria. Now, Samaria was not a place uh, that Jewish men would be welcomely received usually, and the Samaritans and Jews had an ancient beef, but they still try to go to spread uh, the good news about Jesus, but the Samaritans reject him. And in verse 54, James and John have a little power going to their heads. Remember, Jesus really did give them authority. They really were doing miracles back in verses 6 of chapter 9 and verses 10 of chapter 9. I don't know about you, but I have not done a whole lot of miracles in my life. So the power is going to James and John's head when they're like, hey, Lord, uh, you want us to call down fire from heaven? Wouldn't that be awesome? We could judge the Samaritans right now. Let's call that the sin of harshness. Jesus rebukes them in verse 55 for it. And then finally, in verses 57 to 62, there are three examples of would-be disciples who want to follow Jesus, and Jesus says, no, no, no. The allegiance to follow me has got to be higher than anything else in your life. You might be homeless. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Or he tells the man who says, let me first bury my own father, which is an ancient expression for, hey, first let me live with my father until he dies. My first allegiance is to my family of origin, and then I can come and follow you. And Jesus says, no, I have to be first. Or as he says in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom and then everything else gets added to you. Jesus has to be of first allegiance. And so I think unbelief manifests here as fear. Fear of risk for Jesus. Okay, let me summarize all this. I just summarized a big passage that we just read here. God's verdict is that we really don't trust Jesus. That's the root sin. And the evidence that we don't trust Jesus could be any of these things. Our ignorance... Our pride that we think we're better than, our territorialism and surely that God loves us more, our harshness, or our fear of risk in following Jesus. All of these results of unbelief as Jesus' followers, ignorance, pride, harshness, fear, territorialism, reveal something I'm going to call iatrogenesis. Iatrogenesis is actually a medical term that literally means kind of harm originating from the healer or harm caused by the healer. Medically, it's often used to to describe an illness that's picked up in the hospital, which wasn't the original reason that someone went into the hospital. Recently, deceased pastor and writer Eugene Peterson gives an example of this in one of his books called Tell It Slam. He was an avid runner, and through being an avid runner, he had developed a knee injury. So he had to go to the hospital and have knee surgery. And through the surgery, he developed a staph infection that required longer to recover from than the original surgery itself. And the doctors called it an iatrogenic illness. Ultimately, iatrogenesis means any over-intervention that perhaps causes more harm than good in the search for healing. So an over-reliance on antibiotics can make you eventually immune from antibiotics and more susceptible to an infection. Or an over-reliance on NSAIDs, a kind of medicine like ibuprofen, can damage the lining of your stomach and ultimately give you stomach ulcers. I should know. I did that two years ago. Or, and this is much more controversial, but several, and I should say many, child neurological experts are now saying that mandatory masks for elementary age children probably caused more psychological harm than the risks that younger children had due to COVID. 
iatrogenesis, harm caused in the attempt at healing. Now, if you think the medical establishment is guilty of iatrogenesis, how much more so are we Christians? We Christians are guilty of a spiritual form of iatrogenesis, which is the very unbelief that festers while we're trying to follow Jesus. The unbelief that actually can get worse sometimes in our attempts at following Jesus. If that sounds like a crazy claim, let me spell this out a little bit with a few more examples. Ignorance. Your desire to make Jesus known with non-Christians can easily morph into image management. I've got to look good because I've got to be a good witness. And all the while, that can easily morph into an ignorance that the way forward to share about Jesus is through weakness and his cross. It's the very thing he's trying to get across to to, to the disciples. And so ignorance flourishes more sometimes in trying to be a good witness. Or how about this? You long to truly worship Jesus, to be with Jesus. And over time, you have come to love to sing to him, to be with him. You can do it at church. You can do it by yourself. And you give your whole body and your emotions over to worshiping Jesus, which can morph easily into looking around on a Sunday morning and going, "Hmm, I'm worshiping so much better than these people around me. Pride. Iatrogenesis. Or maybe you have a concern for the poor, and because you are trying to follow Jesus, that can easily morph into a harshness for other Jesus followers who don't do it as much as you do. And the unbelief has festered even more. Iatrogenesis. Harm. Caused in the very act of trying to be healed. Our unbelief manifests itself sometimes in the harm we accrue along the way in trying to follow Jesus. But when the unbelief is revealed, we become much more aware of how much more sinful we are than we really thought. And this leads us to our final necessary point. It says there is ultimately only one way to escape this verdict of unbelief and the results that follow from it. Which is, we need a savior. So let's talk about the savior of Jesus' followers. We don't just need a savior when we become a Christian. We need him ongoingly. Jesus has given the verdict of unbelief. He's given many evidences to the disciples of their unbelief. And he leaves a trail of breadcrumbs throughout this passage that the judgment of that unbelief is not going to fall on the disciples. The judgment of that unbelief is going to fall on himself. It starts in the last passage that Matt preached about last week, which is that Jesus is on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. He is in his moment of glory where he is just shining and brilliant and radiant. And he's talking with Moses and Elijah And they're talking about his exodus, which means his departure, his departure from life, his cross. And then in this passage, in verse 44, he's telling the disciples that he's going to be delivered over to the hands of men, which means his arrest, his ultimately his trial, and his death and crucifixion. And then we have a couple of directional notes In verse 51 and 53, at the outset, it looks like the disciples had started in the north and they're going south to Samaria. And then it says in verses 51 and 53 that Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. So you think, oh, there's some nice directional notes. Jesus is going to keep heading further south. And then if you read on in the book of Luke, it takes 10 chapters for Jesus to get there. He doesn't arrive into Jerusalem until Luke chapter 19. And then if you follow a few other directional notes along the way in the next 10 chapters, sometimes Jesus is headed back north, away from Jerusalem. Sometimes he heads east. Sometimes he heads west. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem. Luke, 
How come he's not going towards Jerusalem? How come sometimes he goes somewhere else? Because Luke is telling us that Jesus is not providing a directional note. He's setting his face towards Jerusalem because everything that happens from here on out and the rest of the book of Luke happens in the shadow of Jesus thinking about his cross, taking on the judgment of our unbelief and saying, I will bear the punishment of your estrangement from God. This is why in verse 44, he says, let this sink into your ears. And he's using emphatic language. In the original language, the word your is the, the word that's emphasized. Let this sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered over into the hands of men. I will bear the punishment for you, Jesus says. I will take that verdict of unbelief upon myself. Friends, if you want to follow Christ more closely, your deepest problem is not that you aren't trying hard enough. Yes, there are practices we can do. We call them spiritual disciplines that can help us get in the way of grace, but they won't help us to be more accepted by God. Your deepest problem is also not other people and how much they thwart your wonderful existence. It's not your spouse, your kids, your colleagues, your extended family. They're not your deepest problem. Your deepest problem is not your life circumstances and all the suffering and hardship you are facing right now, however hand-wringing that may be. Your deepest problem is ultimately that there are corners of your heart, there are attics of your mind, there are habits of your body don't really trust Jesus fully. And Jesus says, the way to trust me more is not to just will yourself to do it, but to keep before you, to keep before your ears that the Son of Man has come to take the verdict of unbelief, the judgment of unbelief upon you, that his sacrifice and love and ruthless pursuit of you all the way to Jerusalem sink into your ears. Let's pray. Our Father, grow our trust in Jesus. Root out those places of unbelief deep within us that pop up to the surface in all sorts of ways and help us trust in Jesus even more than we did before today that we might be transformed. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.